It was a calculated risk. Pals before gals or gals before pals. This was the question, the opportunity, the crisis that came up before me as I was a second year at the University of Virginia. I was involved with Christian fellowship groups and many of these Christian fellowship groups in different campuses, they have uh, the girl's house and the guy's house, right? Or multiple houses where girls who are believers have come together, guys who are believers, and there can be feuds between the two houses. Well, I forget exactly what it was that the uh, girls had done to madden the guy's house, but me being the young upstart, they said, we need to strike back. The empire must strike back. And so my responsibility was to go to the girl's house, feigning friendship and relationship, and to steal the key, which was on the back ring, and replace it with another one. It was a spare key. They would never notice. And then the goal would be, late that night, I would, we would uh, creep to the house, open the door, and let in an indeterminate number of rats. Yes, this was the crisis upon my heart. For I truly loved these women. And I knew this was a despicable act. And yet, I had been charged by the guys to do this. So what was I to do? Well, I did what any idiot second year would do in the presence of young lovely women. I went to them and I said, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but I have an alternative suggestion. Why don't I take them a key that is actually the wrong key? And when they come at night to let the rats in, you can be waiting on the second floor and start to pelt them with water balloons. They loved me. I had sealed my own doom that would come shortly thereafter. And lo and behold, I come back with the key in hand. There is much celebrating as all the finest meats and cheeses of the lands are pulled out. We get the rats. It's late at night. It's time to go. I uh, am there. <laughs> and uh, we go to open the door to let the rats in. But lo and behold, the key does not work. And the lights come on and the balloons start to fall like rain from the sky. And we are beaten back like, uh, like uh, dogs as they all turn to me to try to ex understand what has gone wrong. I feign ignorance, of course. Uh, not a, a difficult thing to do, I might add. Nonetheless, with a little bit of sleuthing, it doesn't take time before somebody gives up the ghost. And it's just a question of time. Several days later, while I'm studying at my apartment, there's a knock on the door. And as I open the door innocently, I am tackled, duct taped, blindfolded, thrown in the back of a car where I'm taken to the girl's house, stripped down, in their great mercy not entirely, tied to a tree and hosed down with water in freezing temperatures to send a message this sort of behavior will not be tolerated. Gals before pals, I leave it up to you. Much of the decisions that we make in life have ramifications. Much of the decisions are of this sort of variety. To embrace one is to deny the other. There is no middle ground, so to speak. We must choose whichever bed and then we must lie in it. Jesus 
The maddening thing about Jesus Christ to the world is he is a decidedly exclusive figure. I think Christianity would be very comfortably accepted by this world if there wasn't this problem that Jesus would throw out things like this. If you gain the world, you lose your soul. If you embrace me, you will have life. But if you deny me, you will have death. Jesus seems to center, not seems to, he centers everything around himself and makes comments such as, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is more than simply communicating that he has come to be an improvement in our life. Jesus is communicating, rather, that He is life. That the problems with our world are greater than we think. And that Jesus, as the author of life, is the only one who has the ability to bring resurrection to this world, indeed, resurrection to our souls. And so today, Jesus gives this disquieting teaching that the only way for us to find life is to experiencing it to experience it in death. That we can only find our life when we surrender our life to Him. Jesus' message really is quite simple. The life begins, your life begins the moment you die to yourself and pick up His cross and follow Him. And you will only experience your life as you daily carry your cross and follow Him. Well, that is what we're going to discuss today. Jesus communicates to us that there are three things that one must do if they want to take the path that goes from death to life. It is the path of discipleship. Simply to deny oneself, to take up his or her cross, and to follow him. So these are the things we're going to talk about in the next four hours. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Let's look at point number one, to deny ourselves. What does that mean? Well, as backdrop, Jesus here has done these unbelievable miracles in the last chapter. He's given power and authority to the disciples and they have gone off and they have preached the gospel. He has come back. He has fed 5,000. Indeed, he's used the disciples to feed 5,000. And here it is. He's praying alone with his disciples and he turns and he asks them this question. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered... John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. These men, by the way, that are being, uh, uh, that they are bringing up are great prophetic figures. We all remember, of course, Elijah. Remember the one who stood up to the 500 prophets of Baal and he, he uh, put them to shame and killed them all. He was the one who was supposed to herald the coming of the Messiah, the Great One. So people would naturally think that maybe Jesus was Elijah. Maybe he was one of the old prophets who came. They were afraid of no one. They communicated that the Christ was coming, the Messiah. He would set all aright. Or maybe he is the resurrection, the reincarnation of John the Baptist, who had raised quite a stir, even the religious figures coming to him, saying, repent, for the King is coming. The kingdom of God is near. All of these people were pointing 
to what the people believed was this great figure, this Messiah-like figure in the style of King David, who was coming and was going to set the world aright with a sword. He was going to come and he was going to vanquish the enemies of Israel and restore them to prominence. See, they were looking for a conquering king. But then Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? These disciples knew even more. This was not the prophet. This was the Christ of God, the Messiah. But Jesus does something very strange when they give the correct pronouncement. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. This word commanded, by, commanded, by the way, is the same term as that of a military officer. A commanding officer who forbids an officer to do something. Forbids a, a soldier to do something. He's giving them a stern warning not to communicate this. And we must ask the question, why? It's who he is. They're already on the verge of understanding and proclaiming Jesus as king. The reason is this. There can be no Messiah or true understanding of Messiah without death and resurrection. A Messiah, a Christ that does not have a cross in his plan is not the Messiah at all. But you see, the people are not interested in hearing about a cross. They're not interested in hearing about sin. They're interested in vindication from external pressure. Jesus has other plans, and those plans are not to rule. The plans are to die. Jesus goes on and says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the, same, on the third day be raised. These things that the Messiah is supposed to undergo, to suffer, to suffer at the hands of the people who say, crucify him, crucify him. To rejected, be rejected by the religious establishment who is supposed to, of all people, acknowledge him. To be killed in this heinous way, being whipped, thorns stuck on his head, and to be raised on a cross and died, and finally to be resurrected. You see, they want a Christ who is not the Christ who has come. Why aren't they getting it, you may ask? Because they want Jesus to save them from their situation. The problem for the Jews is out there. It's the Romans. It's the Romans who have subjugated us, who have stepped on us, who have put us in this condition where we're second-class citizens. We are honorable people. And look at us. We cannot even rule our land. They want Jesus to fix the political problems. They want them to fix the environmental problems. Remember Jesus feeding them with the, with the food, the 5,000? And it says in John that they keep looking for Jesus. They go and find him again. And, they, and Jesus says, the reason that you've come here is because I fed you. Do not work for food that spoils. Jesus is the answer to the problems because to the Jews, something is radically wrong with the world. And Jesus can fix everything. And so what the Jews want to do is they want to do a deal. We make you king and you take care of our problems. But Jesus did not come to save them from their situation. Jesus came to save them from themselves. 
The problem of the Jewish people then is the same problem for us. The problem for us is not out there. The problem is in here. At the core of humanity's problem, it's simply this, that every single one of us has rebelled against God. We want to be king. We want the world to ourselves. The problem is not the Romans. It's not our political establishment. It's not the social institutions of our country, though they can be reformed. The problem is not even environmental. We could solve some of these problems if we could get drinking water to everyone, if we could fix the food problem, the gas problem, the work problem. All would be taken care of. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. And so Jesus has come to live as a man was supposed to live. Obedient to God. To choose God's glory and not the world's. See, before Jesus can rule as rightful king, he needs to submit as obedient son. And so Christ must live in this world opposed to God. He must resist temptation like you and me. He must resist the cries of the world that says, live for self. The problem is out there. And then he must suffer. He must be rejected. For the goals of the world and the goals of God are antithetical to one another. The scriptures say that what is highly valued in man's eyes is detestable in God's sight. And so Jesus came to live as man is supposed to live. And Jesus came to die as we are supposed to die. The ministry of Jesus Christ is a rescue mission. And because Jesus lived obediently and died sacrificially, he was, raised to the, he was raised to life. And so Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A way back to God has been opened. The people want Jesus to fix the world but Jesus has found a way to fix the heart of man. And so he says, if anyone, and that includes you and me, would deny himself. Notice, denying himself. What does it mean to deny oneself? Jesus is saying, if anyone would deny their inner heart, their inner bent, if you will, the reality is that we are all born broken. That we are meant to worship God, but for some reason we worship self. You can see this because it manifests itself from infancy. I'm not talking about an infant being self-centered when they start crying because they're hungry. No, I'm talking about when they're sitting all around a playgroup and one child wants a toy that the other person has, the Tonka truck, and so the little child grabs the Tonka truck and hits the child over on the head because they want the Tonka truck. They haven't learned yet that one is not supposed to do such things. You must be much more uh, stealthy in your maneuvering. We worship ourselves. When we go through adolescence, do we think of God? Do we think of others? 
before we think of ourselves. No, we don't. As adults, we can claim to be altruistic, but when the pack of pictures comes in and you take a look at the digital photos, who's the first person you look for? The way of the world is the way of self. I am number one. But Jesus says a new way has been opened that if anyone would deny himself, unchoose this path and follow me, follow me by surrendering to me as number one, you will experience life. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I had to make a choice, I remember, as a first year at the University of Virginia, life seems to be full of choices in college, doesn't it? I had uh, been thrown in with a bunch of guys in one of these suite-type environments uh, where there were uh, six rooms, 12 guys. Great guys. They did not follow Christ. And it was evident in the way they lived their life. Meanwhile, I was a believer. I had come into the University of Virginia. I was trying to follow Christ. And these were the guys that I had been put with. And I had made relationships with another group of guys through a fellowship group. They were somewhat ornery at times, take the rats, but nonetheless, they were a good group of guys. Well, as you know, you have to make a decision at some point where you're going to live the next year. And I had a choice. I can either live with the guys who I am very comfortable with, who I like, they like me, who are not focused and devoted on the things that I knew Christ wanted me to be focused on, or I can throw in my lot with these guys who I don't know well. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I know who they're following. I made that decision and it made all of the difference for me. Because through that, I found my wife. I found some friends who are friends forever. I grew in ministry, which ultimately led me on the path that led to here. I made a decision. That is what Jesus is talking about. Christ has come to save you and me from you and me. We have bought into the lie that life will only have meaning when I am in the center of it. But the truth, my friends, is this, that we were made for another. And we will only find us when we find Him. And so He calls us to follow Him. How do you leave yourself you deny that you're God. Every single one of us has a little throne. It's about yay big, and it's right in the center of our heart. And we put somebody on it. And Jesus says, put me on it. Put me first in your life. Why? Because I belong there. Deny that you are God. Deny that the world is your king. See its lies for what it is. Deny its rule. Live by a different ruler. Embrace and follow number one. And make the decision that I will be number two. And walk choosing willingly the path of suffering. See, Jesus is saying whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Yourself will fight you every step of the way. Your mind, will, and emotions. Part of me still loves the world. Though my heart has been changed. My personality 
only finds its life as it depends on Jesus. And so the path of following Christ is the path of temptation and suffering. Maybe the path of ridicule. As people look at how you live your life and question it. Might ultimately lead to death. Never thought I'd say that in America. But what about those folks at that community college in Oregon? Hmm? Are you a Christian? We receive life the moment we die to ourselves and pick up His cross. And we experience our life as we daily carry our cross and follow Him. This leads me to my second point, that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross, says Jesus. You know, it's interesting that Jesus refers to the cross. Nobody knew that He was going to be killed that way. So why does Jesus refer to taking up one's cross? We must understand that uh, uh, being crucified was a process. There was more to it than simply being hung on the cross. That part of the sentence was not only to be hung on the cross, but you were sentenced to also carry your cross. Now why would this be part of your punishment? The reason is simply this. That carrying the cross was a public display of a person's submission to the state. It was designed to communicate that this person will uh, is forced to submit and bow under the authority of the state to carry their instrument of crucifixion, uh, of death, up to the cross. We would call this cruel and unusual punishment in the United States. Imagine telling someone that they have to carry their electric chair or their syringe down whatever path to the place where they will be killed. That is exactly what the Romans were communicating in no uncertain terms. This is a forced submission. All will bow to the rules of Rome. You know, before Jesus, nobody ever carried a cross voluntarily. You were made to carry the cross. And in the world's eyes, it was the depth of shame. It was the ultimate putting you in your place. And so to take up the cross is to demonstrate the authority of that who is authority over you. The reason Jesus Christ carried the cross was not of shame, but of love. Because he had done nothing wrong. And yet his goal was to pay the penalty for our sin to walk the path that leads to death to die the death we should have died after he lived the life that we should have lived and so when Jesus says to take up your cross is to display submission to a new authority to God and his kingdom that I'm denying myself I'm taking off myself and I submit to a new king who owns me who rules me till death do us part, literally. It's not a forced submission, by the way. It's a voluntary one. Notice the way Jesus positions it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Denying himself to take up his cross. 
And this demonstration is meant to be public. World, this is my new authority. It's meant to be sacrificial. I give my life to you. It's meant to be worship. Jesus said, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's voluntary and it's valuable. Verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, Jesus is doing an equation here. Cost-benefit analysis. What if you could gain the whole world? What if you could do that, by the way? What if I could promise you the whole world? In the world of the internet, you know, we can actually see the whole world, can't we? Ever when you're kind of, you know, on the internet somewhere and you look down and it says, come see Taylor Swift's mansion or the top 50 mansions out there and you click on it and you see these unbelievably beautiful, staggering houses set on the coastline. What if you could have one of those? What if you could have all of them? It's amazing when Will and I went to Japan, a country that is, I would say, obsessed with beauty. They are the place where you can go into the, uh, we went into the mall and we're going to take you into a Japanese mall where uh, meat there, Kobe beef at $300 a pound. And you look at it and it is just beautiful, marbled. And you look at the, they've taken such care to grow grapes. I don't know how they do it, but they grow them about yay big. Magnificent grapes at $300 a bunch. Who's going to eat $300 grapes? They were able, I don't know how they do it. We saw watermelons that, they, that were grown as squares. They even had a watermelon. Somehow they managed to make look like a perfect heart. Could be yours for $1,000. That's ridiculous. Well, what if it all could be yours? The most beauty, beautiful things. The, Jesus is saying, what if you could have everything? Would it be worth it? Jesus says, no, it wouldn't be worth it. Because you'd forfeit your soul. Using a business term, you'd suffer loss. Because the world compared to Jesus, choosing the world is an absolute and utter write-off, a failure. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's why Jesus so quickly spoke to Satan, who said, You see all the kingdoms of the world? I will give them to you if you but bow and worship me. He said, Be gone, for it is written, Worship the Lord and serve him only. I want you guys to understand something. There's always a cross to carry. The world promises freedom and it gives slavery. I don't know if you've ever tried to gain the whole world or not. I have. Remember leaving ministry and deciding I'm done with that. I'm done with being poor. 
I'm done with the pain and frustration. It's time to go into business and make a name for myself. And by God's grace, I was successful in some areas. And so the nice things began to come. And there was more money. More money than I'd ever thought I would ever make. But I found something very, very interesting. The more money I had, the more I obsessed over it. The more money I had, the more it was not enough. Because there was always the danger of it going away. It was like sand in an hourglass. Am I saying that money is bad? No. Am I saying that possessions are bad? No. Am I saying they are compared to following Christ? Absolutely. Because you'll always carry a cross. And that cross that you carry will either lead to life or death. At the end of the day, my mentor Jerry, he asked, uh, whenever you're trying to figure out something, he always asks simply three questions. He says, number one, what do you really want? Both now and forever. Number two, how much are you willing to suffer for? Because you're always going to suffer. And finally, number three, what gets my time? So the question I have for you is simply this. Whose cross are you carrying? I surrender to the world. Well, maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe I surrender to some sort of cause, a noble one. Jesus says if it's anything other than Jesus, it's a total loss. And so you must look at your life, my friends. A public submission, not just your words. But how are you living? Whoever has my commands and obeys them, says Jesus, he is the one who loves me. Look at your life and look at your love. What brings you the most pleasure? The pleasures of the world? Or that pleasure would come to God? And finally, we must put down the cross of the world. For Christ has created a new path. You are no longer chained to the cross of the world. For Christ has freed us to willingly pick up the cross of Christ and lose your life to save it. For He is the resurrected one, the loving one, and He will watch over you. This brings me to my final point to deny oneself, to take up their cross and follow me. You know, this follow me is actually different than the other two, if you look at the Greek. Denying yourself and taking up your cross are in the what's called the indefinite past tense. It's something that you must do. But follow me is an imperative in the present tense. It's something you must be doing. See, I want you to understand the difference between discipleship and sonship. Because the last thing I want you to hear is that I need to go out of here, deny myself, pick up a cross, and someday if I do it right, I will get to sonship. Sonship occurs when I make a decision to follow after God. You become a disciple when you become a son or daughter. I became a son when I was 18 years old when I knew Christianity was right and I picked up my cross. How do I know that I'm still a son? Because I'm still following him. Follow him today is what the scriptures are saying. So what exactly is a disciple? Better word might be student or apprentice. 
Luke 6.40 says it this way, a student or disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. By God's, I hope he knows what he's doing, I know he does. My sons and my daughter have become my students and I their teacher. I am their teacher because they are my children. And my job is to train them and teach them formally and informally and to help them grow up so they will become full of what they were meant to be. My boys and my daughter will become greater than I. But I remember even yesterday, actually two days ago, someone I hadn't seen for a long time saw my son out on the field playing drums and he said, I knew that was your son. How did you know that? Because he walks like you. And he looks like you. See, Jesus has a plan. And the plan is sonship and daughtership. And within that, the framework of discipleship. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has a plan. That God is our heavenly Father. And through me, I will teach you the path. The world is not your Father. It has no relationship and interest in you. The world does not know anything, but God knows everything. And class is always in session for one who is a child of God. So whatever situation you are in, God is...